What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. It's a great day here at Baseball America. It's the Top 100 release day. We released our 2020 Top 100 prospects. Uh, Baseball America has been releasing a Top 100 prospect since 1990. 30 years of doing it, and uh, it's always fun. I'm joined by Ben Badler today to break down this year's Top 100. Ben, Wander Franco took the number one spot in our BA Top 100 Uh the staff voted him the number one prospect unanimously. Going into Wander a little bit, I did want to ask you, especially since you have the most history with him uh, covering his signing as an international free agent, was there any question for you uh, regarding Wander Franco being the number one prospect this year? Was there anyone else you even considered voting for? Uh, no. <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, look, I, I liked Luis Robert and Joe Adele and, and Gavin Lux and uh, Adley Rushman a lot, but, you know, Wander Franco, I don't think, I suspect nobody was surprised that we put him number one. I mean, you really have to nitpick to find any holes in his game. It's just, uh, you know, an 18-year-old kid to go out and do what he did in the Florida State League. I mean, you know, his, his peers are guys like you know, Bobby Witt Jr. and C.J. Abrams and Riley Green, like these guys who were just drafted last year. And here's Wander Franco, who is uh, the best hitter already in at the high A level. He's got a chance to reach the major leagues by the time he's 19. I mean, on a conservative timetable, he's there when he's 20 years old. I think you're, you're talking about somebody who has uh, elite, elite barrel control uh, strike zone judgment power is there. Um, you know, he, maybe you could poke some holes on his defense as though, like, you know, depending who his teammate is eventually, like, he, he might go to third base or second base. Uh, but at any of those positions, I think he has the offensive upside to, to be a superstar at, at any of those spots. Yeah, I keep going back to uh, Jose Ramirez as a potential comparison. Uh, when I interviewed Franco in the Appy League, he talked about how even though he had two brothers who were minor leaguers and, and his uncle Eric Ibar was a, an all-star shortstop, his idol growing up with was his neighbor and friend, uh, Jose Ramirez. And Ramirez, obviously, a third baseman. He's played a little bit of second base in Cleveland uh, last year, but primarily a third baseman, switch-hitting all-star. I see a lot of that in Franco. Uh, we mentioned Franco was unanimous, which means I did vote for him number one. I think I was the only one on staff, though, who considered someone else. And the guy I considered very strongly, and I almost did it, was Joe Adele. And here's why. So last year, we voted Vladimir Guerrero Jr. number one overall prospect in baseball. The thing that nagged at me, and I ultimately deferred to the larger body of work, comparing what Vlad had done in the minors versus what Fernando Tatis Jr. had done in the minors. Every time I saw Fernando Tatis Jr. compared to every time I saw Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Tatis was the better player. He hit the ball harder. He made more contact. He was obviously a much, much, much better athlete. And so I still voted for Vlad because I deferred to, you know, again, the larger body work. What I had seen was a small sample size and not go crazy on that. But after watching what happened in the majors this year, look, if you ask 29 of 30 teams right now who they'd rather have, they would tell you the answer is Fernando Tatis Jr. 
I've had the same thing happen to me with Joe Adele and Wander Franco. I've seen a decent amount of these guys over multiple years now. And, and most recently in the Futures game, they were on the same field together. The best player in that game, the best player on that field was Joe Adele, both statistically and just watching him, what he was doing in the box, what he was doing defensively, a diving catch he made. So for me, that's where I actually got close. Based on what had happened in the Tatis Guerrero debate for me last year, I almost went Adele. I ultimately, again, I deferred to the larger body of work in voting for Franco. But if this happens again, I, I might start changing how I kind of evaluate this because I do think there is something to be said for, again, who's the best player on the field? And to me, Adele has consistently been that. We saw that continue even uh, to uh, Olympic qualifying this year. I mean, in a tournament with Japanese superstar professionals, he led that tournament in hits, tied for the lead in home runs. On our final top 100, Joe Adele came in at number three versus Luis Robert. For me and me personally, just peeling back the curtain for all our listeners, Joe Adele is closer to number one than he was to number three for me. You mentioned Luis Robert and Joe Adele for you was another uh, discussion because those are the two guys you felt were the, the two next best prospects. Uh, as a staff, Robert came out ahead of Adele in voting. When we submitted that to front office officials, uh, no one really pushed back on that, so it stayed that way. I do consider Adele to be a, a better prospect than Robert, but I think they're both potential superstars. How did you kind of break this one down, and what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so the the guy actually like a little bit more than them was was Gavin Lux. I think he's yeah. There was some support for for him at number two from yeah, some front office so, officials. So I, yeah, so I, and I just love the you know the polish and middle of the diamond, uh, the the hitting, the just just the just the very advanced hitting ability, strike zone control, uh, total package with Lux. I, I just think is uh, extremely. I think it's a very high upside for a player who is, uh, I think, has less risk, too, than Robert and Adele. But, I mean, look, I love all four of these guys. And, and, and yeah, Adele Adele versus Robert, I mean, look, compared to, back to your point, compared to you know, Adele to, like, a, a Wander Franco, I, I think you can certainly argue that Adele and, and Luis Robert probably, too, if you're just looking at uh, just just raw tools, uh, you know, tools outside of pure hitting ability and athleticism, uh, yeah, I think Adele and Robert have louder tools out again outside of <laughs> the pure hitting ability than than Wander Franco. I mean, Adele and Robert are two of the most electric players. In the minor leagues, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I think Adele and 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 I, I think there's some risk with Robert in terms of the uh, the pitch recognition with him. I, I don't. I, I do think that it's you know there there is a a bit of a red flag there, but I think that the rest of his skills are enough where he still is going to develop into uh you know a, a well above average uh regular uh, but I, I do think that is some uh some risk with him that you know somebody like a franco i have no concerns whatsoever with his uh, uh his ability to to recognize pitches but but yeah i mean i, I think i think robert and adele the just the raw electricity that, that these two have in uh, in, in their tool set beyond the, the pure hitting ability uh, is, is, is something that, that really stands out with those two. Yeah, and Lux, you mentioned being the all-around complete player. I think going into this, and I say this as the guy who's been on the Gavin Lux train you know, for a while, I remember coming back to the staff after going out to the Calig in 2018 and saying, guys, we got to get Gavin Lux on the top 100 and probably the top 50. This was a burgeoning stud. He turned out to be... An interesting comp that came up for me was actually Chase Utley, and I can see that. A perennial all-star second baseman, number two hitter on a championship-level team at his peak, 
Uh, Utley had three 30 home run seasons, although some of that was influenced by playing in Citizens Bank Park, but hit for average, hit for power, got on base, stole some bases, a really good player for a long time, and maybe not as flashy as some of the other guys in baseball at the time, but uh, you look up, and, and he was one of the better players for a 10-year span in the major leagues, and I think Lux has the ability to do something like that. Adley Rutschman checked in at number five. We went with position players uh, for the top five. All these guys have big ceilings. All these guys are potentially franchise players. Mackenzie Gore is our top-ranked pitching prospect, checking in at number six. One of the things I thought was interesting was as we submitted our list out to front office officials throughout the game, all different organizations, I was going to be curious to see if there was any pushback, hey, Gore should be higher within these position players. Not a single one came back that way, and I think it's a testament to how good these five position players potentially are when all of us as a staff said, yeah, these five position players should be ahead of our top-ranked pitcher. Every single front office official we talked to agreed. Now, some discussed Gore versus Pearson as potentially who's the number one pitching prospect, but it was unanimous and consensus that these five position players should go ahead of our top-ranked pitching prospect, whether that be Gore or Pearson. I think history has shown us that's the right way to go. Uh, Pitchers, there's just so much risk involved. Gore and Pearson, neither have had major structural injuries. Uh, Gore's had blister issues. Pearson got hit by a comebacker and missed most of his season, but they both came back this year healthy and showed what they can do. For you, was there any thought that these guys should be in the top five, or were they clearly six and seven? Yeah, I I think the five position players that that we have in the top five are are just very, they're all very complete players. There's very high upside with uh, with not a, a lot of risk with with any of them. I mean, you know, talked about some of the risk factor maybe with like Luis Robert, but like it, it, that's really more like we're nitpicking like who's number two versus number three or four, kind of a kind of a risk factor with them. Um, you know, like you mentioned, I, I think there's just uh, a lot less risk with these with these position players and then there are with pitchers and you know if, if you go back and look at the lists that were done in you know the 1990s in, in those top 100s I think pitchers were a lot higher back then but but just over time we have more information and, and more data and more track record that shows that you know you know when you have these really elite elite position players they they belong at at the top of the list uh, you know, somebody like, you know, we have Julio Rodriguez at, at number eight. Uh, you know, I, I don't think he belongs uh, above uh, Pearson or Gore. Now, he might develop into a better player, but I, I wouldn't put Julio Rodriguez uh, yet. We're, we're probably being aggressive with him, but I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't put him in that same class of those top five position players. But uh, I do think that, you know, Gore, Pearson, these are the two guys. The two, the two pitching prospects in the minor leagues with the best chance to develop in the true frontline potential number one type of starters. And they both have that potential. I think Jesus Lazardo has shown flashes of doing it. What separated him a little bit is he has had the major structural injuries to his elbow, to mm-hmm. his shoulder that kind of knocks him down a little bit. Rodriguez and Dylan Carlson were the two that we were most aggressive on and I was going to again I was going to be curious to see what the feedback from front office officials was hey are these guys too high are they too low again not a single one in fact I straight up asked is Julio Rodriguez too high they said no as a matter of fact they thought he might be the number one prospect in baseball whether it's this time next year or the year after that Dylan Carlson was the other one where I said hey is this too high I could see the argument for it being a little rich and every single person came back saying, no, you are right on. This is a guy who, again, for a lot of his career has been thought of as, you know, a good, well-rounded player, going to be a big leaguer. How much impact is there going to be? Talking to front office officials around the game, what he showed them this year in terms of the power-speed combination combined with the instincts, the ability to control the strike zone, play all three outfield positions, potentially be a plus defender in the corners, although his arm is best suited for left. There was a lot of sense that this is not only just a really, really good player. This is someone who has a chance to be a multiple-time All-Star, you know, hit in the middle of the order for uh, for a contending team for a long time. Uh, switch hitting Andre Ethier was one comp I got. 
someone else said this that, and I thought it was an interesting note. He, now he did not compare him to Christian Yelich. He is not saying Dylan Carlson is Christian Yelich, but he said he does some things with the ease that a Christian Yelich does. That easy swing, that easy natural baseball ability. And I thought that was interesting. That either way, people are seeing an all-star caliber corner outfielder. And no one thought this was too high, even though as we tallied the final voting results, my first instinct was this might be a tick high for Carlson. Yeah, he's uh, everything you said. I, I agree with. I mean, I think it's he, he's an extremely well-rounded player and and just an extremely talented hitter. And like you said, that that ease from the left side it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, of Michael Conforto's swing from from that left side. He, he just has a lot of elite hitting attributes that you see from from the best hitters in baseball he, he, and he knows the strike zone that there's power to go with it he, he reached he reached triple a at, uh, at at 20 years old uh, there's uh there, there's just a ton to like with with dylan carlson yeah, you know, and his exit velocity was 88. It's about the major league average. He wasn't one of these guys posting huge exit velocities we saw throughout the year. But one of the things that kept coming back from evaluators was even though it's not like this huge raw plus power where the ball's jumping off his bat and traveling a mile, he makes so much contact and does such a good job swinging at pitches he can hit. His home run total is going to exceed what maybe that natural raw power might be. And we do see that sometimes. Um, again, completely different player, but a guy like Ozzy Albies, who his raw power, if you just measure it by distance, is a lower grade than his actual game power, which normally people say, oh, the raw power is a higher number than the game power. But some guys, those numbers flip because they have just a, a great ability to barrel balls and put them over the fence. And look, a 350-foot home run counts the same as a 450-foot home run. Carlson's got more raw juice than that, but uh, there's a sense that he's going to get the most visibilities and be a really, really good hitter for a long time. Yeah, I was, was going to say, and I, and I think too with Carlson, I mean, for him, you know, he's just coming into his age 21 season. I, I think that's something where you're, you're going to see that improve over the, just the, the game power output. Uh, I mean, I think he hit like 25-something home runs this year anyway so uh and, and most of that was not in the uh the triple a super bowl anyway but uh, i think that's something where you know as he gets into his mid-20s you're you know you mentioned christian yelich and, and again not saying he's christian yelich but just as an example of a guy who you know has that really really innate knack for barreling balls and, and has kind of always had that throughout his career uh going to, you know through his professional career since he was drafted out of uh high school you know early in his career he was uh i mean in the major leagues he was a single digit home run guy uh and then eventually and again obviously the uh, <laughs> the baseballs play a, a factor into it the, the last couple of years but uh just an example of somebody uh where where you have that innate ability to barrel the baseball as you get as you get stronger and, and just a, a better understanding of your strengths and weaknesses as a hitter and, and how opposing pitchers are are attacking you that power can uh that that game power that home run production can can really take a jump as you uh get into your your mid to late 20s too the one through 10 was pretty slam dunk that these are the top 10 prospects in baseball again guys like jared kelnick christian pache got a couple of mentions but it seemed like on the whole we as a staff as well as front office officials around the game felt that no this is the top 10 maybe you can flip two and three maybe you can flip six and seven but these were the guys. 11 through 20 is where it got kind of interesting. Carter Keyboom, we initially had a little bit higher. We dropped him behind Casey Mize and Brendan McKay based on some front office feedback. There were some votes for Dustin May to be a little bit higher. But again, on the whole, it seemed like this was the 11 to 20 group. Two players that I thought were interesting. One, Sixto Sanchez, who, you know, it's huge stuff. The bat missing hasn't happened yet, but there's, there's still faith there. And the other guy was Marco Luciano, who jumped into the top 100 last year, is now a top 20 prospect. And again, this was a very, very aggressive jump. I wanted to see if front office officials came back and said, hey, that's too high. He's not there yet. Not a single one said that. They all raised, you know, 10, 15 guys they thought were too high, too low. Not one of them thought Marco Luciano was out of place. And that was telling to me. Yeah, Marco, Marco Luciano is... Uh, uh... He's he's young, but he's he's extremely exciting. I, I just love everything about him. It, you know, at least from an, an offensive perspective. Certainly, question marks on whether he's going to stay at shortstop. But 
you know, ever since I saw him, I think probably the first time I saw him was like January 2017. So, so I guess three years ago now, um, he just had a, a, a great, great swing, uh, and bat speed, huge power, especially by the time he signed. Um, and I, I, you know, as much as I loved him when he signed, he, he was our top 16 year old international prospects in, in his class. And I uh, think the track of, of those guys in recent years is really good. But, uh, as, as much as I loved him, I, I did not expect him to go out and just dominate the Arizona league the way he did this year. So, um, you know, a, a, as much as I, I loved him, he even exceeded my expectations for uh, for what he was going to do uh, in 2019. Yeah, I mean, you can't argue with what he did, the surface level stats, but also as we dug into it a little bit, just the quality of contact he makes. You'll notice on our top 100, if you go check it out, we have the average exit velos for every hitter, average fastball velocity for every pitcher, and... Marco Luciano, as a rookie ball player, is already hitting the ball with an average exit velo of 93 miles an hour, and it's not like he's doing that but swinging and missing. He's consistently barreling the ball up, driving it at an above-average major league exit velocity as a teenager, especially when you kind of weight it against the average exit velocity for rookie ball in general. He jumps off the charts. It's going to be really interesting to see just how he continues to grow and develop as a hitter. Obviously, the pitching gets tougher the higher you move up, and he still has to show he can make that jump. But what he's shown so far was very, very promising. Forrest Whitley and Royce Lewis are in 25 and 26 for us this year. They've each been in the top 10 at various points. Uh, both had tough years. Uh, long story short, the Astros really kind of screwed with Whitley's uh, delivery, trying to turn him into one of their pitcher clones, four-seamer up, curveball down, even though that's not Whitley's game or his strengths. As a result, his control backed up two grades this year as uh, J.J. Cooper graded it. And Royce Lewis, concerns about his pure hitting ability, kind of came to pass this year, struggled in double-A, wasn't overwhelming in high-A either, kind of boosted his stock with a strong Arizona Fall League. Again, both these are still players who are in the top third of all prospects in baseball. They're still all-star potential ceilings here, but these were considerable drops from where they've been in the past. I know for me, you know, I thought, okay, maybe we could bump them up a little bit into that 21-22 range, but there was no sense from evaluators or based on our reporting that these were top 20 prospects in baseball anymore. And again, I thought that was telling that the evaluators just said, eh, you hit him a little hard, meant maybe put him up at number 22 and 23. No one saw these guys as top 20 prospects in baseball anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably even lower on Forrest Whitley than where we have him right now. Now, if you had asked me about Forrest Whitley a year ago, I, I would have been talking about him the same way, uh, you know, the same way we're, we're talking about Nate Pearson and, and Mackenzie Gore right now. So a year ago, <laughs> I loved Forrest Whitley, thought he had a chance to be a number one starter, and I'm not writing him off over over one bad year, but it's the, the reports on him were very concerning, and it's not like, oh, he was just in AAA and, and because of the uh, the ball and, and the environment this year, and it was you know poor luck on, on batted balls. It was a combination of the reports on on the stuff and and the control just really backing up. Now he's 21 years old. He's six foot seven. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to still uh, to to still believe in in Forrest Whitley. It's not like he's that far removed from from being a uh, a, a dominant pitching prospect, the the kind of guy that he showed in 2018. But uh, the red flags with with Whitley to me are more concerning uh, than they are with uh, with Royce Lewis. I, I still see a lot of components. Uh, with Royce Lewis, I mean, and, and just being 20 years old, being pushed pretty aggressively uh, through that system to, to double A as a 20 year old, I still see uh, components between the uh, the raw tools and, and things that I do like in in the swing. Still, uh, I do think obviously his stock has dropped from from a year ago, but uh, you know, of those two guys, I definitely have more concerns. Uh, with Whitley than I do with Lewis. I'm a little bit more 
uh, optimistic about Lewis going forward. I think one of the biggest keys will, you know, seeing if the Astros kind of let Forrest Whitley be Forrest Whitley and realize, hey, this guy's 6'8". He's best when he's powering his fastball downhill, using his cutter, trying to make him a, a four-seam up, curveball down guy. You know, I saw it in the fall league. That's just not who he is. Certain pitchers are, are better doing certain things than others, and when he tries to do that, the fastball flattens up in the zone, and he struggles to land the curveball in the strike zone, so batters kind of spit on it out of the hand. They don't really consider it a pitch they have to worry about. I think getting him back to just let him be that power downhill guy from that six foot eight huge, huge plane and let him really do work with that cutter, I think letting him have an arsenal more similar to what we saw to Dustin May would let him get back to being the best version of himself. And I'm going to be curious to see if the Astros are flexible enough in their philosophy and let him be the best pitcher he can be or if they're kind of stubborn about it and try and turn him into this robot who fits every other pitcher in their system. That's going to be the key to me moving forward this year. 27 through 32 for me was where the debates really, really started. Again, 1 through 10, it was pretty consensus, yes, these are the guys who belong there. 11 through 20, yes, it was pretty consensus, these are the guys who belong there. 21 to 26, again, very little you know, discussion from evaluators on front office officials about, oh, this guy's you know, 10 spots too high. For the most part, it was a sense that the top quartile, or the top 26, I should say, so just over 25%. These were the top 26 prospects in baseball. 27 is where things started to get a little bit more hazy. Um, we talked a lot about this group. Uh, the Spencer Howard, Alec Bohm, Jordan Groshans, Andrew Vaughn, Alex Kirilov, Joey Bart group. Jordan Groshans was probably the most divisive here. We initially had him higher. I'm the lower man on him. Not that I don't think he's a good player. There's just other players I personally prefer, Joey Bart being one. A lot of the evaluators came back and said, hey, you have him too high, move him lower. We did drop him a couple of spots. He's still above some guys like Andrew Vaughn, like Joey Bart, like Alex Kirilov. A lot of evaluators said they would prefer. Michael Kopech even came up as a guy, even with his Tommy John surgery, as a guy that maybe should be ahead of Groshans. You're the high guy in Groshans, so what for you gave you the faith that, yes, this is a top 30 prospect who should go above all these guys who have performed at higher levels, hit at higher levels, and also don't have the injury history that Groshans does. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with Groshans is the the reports we have on him ever since he, he signed have been extremely, uh, extremely positive going back to last year in the Gulf Coast League and this year in, in the Midwest League, which, which obviously was um, an, an abbreviated stint due to uh, due to injuries, but if, if you just look at the uh, the combination of the the performance and and just the components uh, that he brings to the table, you have somebody who uh, I think has a chance to be a uh, a plus hitter with with plus power. Uh, the, everything that that he does between the uh, the swing, the bat speed is just really it's just natural timing at the plate uh, a knack for uh, for barreling baseballs controlling the strike zone hitting whether it's fastballs breaking pitches uh, it doesn't matter what kind of pitch he, he squares it all up uh, and, he, and he has you know plus raw power too I, I think defensively more than likely moves off shortstop but that just kind of depends on his uh, physical development I mean when Corey Seager was in in low A too, uh, and, and Seager's even a bigger guy than uh, Groshans. Uh, I think the consensus was that yeah, this guy's going to have to eventually move over to third base, but that obviously <laughs> didn't happen. So I, I don't think it's a, a given that Groshans changes positions. But uh, you know, if I had to bet on it, I think he probably will. But I do think he still has a chance to uh, play shortstop. But I think the offensive package that he brings to the table is a, you know a potential all star at, at either spot, and I think you know it's it's hard to uh, you know it would be hard to do this just because he did get injured and, and he didn't actually go out and and play a full season this year. But I think if Groshans had been healthy the entire season, um, he I, I think we would be talking about him. Uh, the same way we're we're talking about uh, Jared Kelenic uh, from from the same 
same draft class. And we'll see what he can do fully healthy. I know for me, I'd like to see him the second time through the league once uh, everyone has a chance to adjust to him. But again, whether he was, you know, too high, um, there was still a sense this is still someone who, you know, should be in the top 50. It was just a matter of whether he's top 30. Uh, either way, this is kind of the impact bat range. Uh, Alec Bohm, Jordan Groshans, Andrew Vaughn, Alex Kirilov, Joey Bart, who uh, would have been my vote uh, for number 27 out of this group, which, you know, just kind of goes to show these five hitters, it was close. All of them were, were right near each other, and I think you could scramble them and not get too much pushback uh, either direction. Tariq Skubal went from borderline unknown to our number 34 prospect this year. Again, someone that I was going to be curious to see the feedback from um, front office officials, whether that was too aggressive a jump. Again, not only did they say, no, that's not too aggressive. They were like, that's the right spot. I mean, this was someone who showed absolutely ridiculous stuff from the left side. And uh, again, you know, we saw Casey Mize and Matt Manning elevate themselves even further this year. They're two of the top 20 prospects in baseball. And there was a sense from some that Scooball belongs in that family. So in some regards, Scooball might actually be too low, which is, you know, just kind of crazy to think about the rise last year. Yeah, I, I love Scooball. I mean, 17 strikeouts per nine in, in double A. I mean, he wasn't there all season, but to do that over nine starts and it's, it's not like this is just some smoking mirrors guy this is a, a lefty who's you know sitting probably like 92 95 ish uh up to 97 uh, you know missing bats with the uh a, a curve uh you know whether it's curveball slider um you know the, the change up he shows pretty good feel for him. i mean there's a pretty deep repertoire from the left side of, of above average stuff uh, and and a guy who, who throws a good amount of strikes too uh, there's I, I, I love Scooball <laughs> it seems like everyone else does too I would describe number 37 and 38 Braylon Marquez and Jason Dominguez as the start of the pushback range what I mean by that is submitting our list to front office officials all around the game Through 36, there was some debate, okay, this guy should be here, this guy should be here. This is where you started to hear more evaluators say, you know, this guy could be in the range anywhere of maybe 10 to 20 spots, potentially even lower. Things started getting a little more scrambled in this range. You know, these are two very, very risky profiles. Marquez, a young left-handed pitcher in A-ball with some body concerns. Uh, Jason Dominguez, a 16-year-old outfielder, obviously a very, very talented young player, received $5.1 million from the Yankees, uh, their consensus number one prospect. But I do understand the hesitation ranking him ahead of guys like Daniel Lynch, who's 99 from the left side, and Nico Horner, who raced in the majors in a year. Uh, guys like Sean Murphy, Matthew Libertor, Brandon Marsh, Ian Anderson, who are you know consensus top 50 prospects that have multiple years of pro performance under their belts. When evaluating these two, Marquez and Dominguez, what were the things for you that ultimately pushed them up above some of those guys? And, and maybe just take us through the process of, of our decision to leave them up there, even though some of the pushback was these guys should be a little lower. Yeah, I mean, I, I think once you get outside the top, you know, 25 prospects in, in baseball, there's going to be, a, there's just not going to be as much consensus on on those players. I, I think just the track record, if, if you look Historically, uh, you know, you mentioned we've been putting out top 100s for uh, for 30 years now. Obviously, I'm not old enough. Well, I hope nobody thinks I'm old enough to have uh, been there for for all 30. Uh, but you know, you, you just you look back at the track record and uh, the top 25 prospects, especially the top uh, you know position players who are ranked among the top 25 prospects. Like the track record on those guys is pretty strong in terms of how they developed uh, into it, it, as major league players. And, and that's not because, like, we're so smart or anything. It's just because, like, yeah, like, it's pretty obvious <laughs> that these guys belong in, in that group. Uh, so I think just once you get past that, it, it starts to uh, get into a – I mean, there's still a consensus, I think, on, like, a group of players uh, that belongs – in in the, the you know the range right after that, but it's it's a much bigger group of players that 
kind of depends on, uh, you know, what you value, what you look for in players. And, uh, you know, you, you could, I think you could put either of these players uh, lower on the list, and, and I, I, I wouldn't really argue it. I mean, I, probably for me, I, I probably would have uh, Marquez a, a little bit lower, just a, with a little bit more risk then. But, I mean, you're talking about a left-handed pitcher who throws 102 miles an hour <laughs> and uh, has a... Uh, has a plus slider and had a, is coming off of a, a really, uh, really good season himself. And, you know, with, with Dominguez, again, it's somebody you, you know, I, I wouldn't have a problem with somebody saying he should be lower. But uh, what I what I like about him, and, and I, I mentioned this, uh, you know, today on the, you know, somebody asked me on, on Instagram, but, uh, you know, if, I think if you just look at the track record of our top-ranked 16-year-old international prospect going back to 2013. Uh, you know, you have Eloy Jimenez, you have Vladimir Guerrero Jr., you have Wander Franco, and you have Marco Luciano. So uh, out of six players, uh, three of those guys, Eloy, Vlad Jr., and Wander Franco were top five overall prospects in the game and two of them, uh, Vladdy and Wander, were the no- eventually the number one overall prospects in baseball. Uh, the fourth out of those six is Marco Luciano, who's just coming off his age 17 season. Uh, he's already a top 20 prospect, and I don't think it's uh, a jump to say he, he might himself be a top five prospects uh, in the game one day. Now, there's obviously risk, too, because the other two players were uh, Kevin Maiton and Adrian Rondon. And Rondon is a bust. Maiton is looking like it's headed that way. Uh, I, I wouldn't put, I, you know, I, I think Maiton, the the scouting reports on him, were probably comparable to a uh, you know, different kind of player, but but more comparable to uh, uh, the level of player that that Dominguez is. Uh, I wouldn't put Rondon in that class. So look, there's there's obviously a lot of risk, but there's also a lot of upside uh, when we put Wander Franco in our top 100 before he ever played a game. Uh, there was definitely a lot of people who did not like that. <laughs> and um, I'm glad we uh, had him in there, obviously, in, in hindsight. So um, I, I think that Dominguez, you know, look, if, if this was 2013 and, and we didn't have, uh, you know, the kind of history and track record and, and data that we had, you know that that we have today in 2020 on on the track records of those guys. Uh, yeah, we probably have them significantly lower, uh, but I think he he benefits from you know so these guys Eloy and and, and Vladdy and Franco and Luciano uh, who who kind of came before him and showed yeah the track record of these guys is uh, uh, good enough or, or I think really good. To, to support being aggressive with uh, with this type of a player. Yeah, some of those guys you talked about when they made their top 100 debuts, they were in the 70s to the 90s. Um, and again, the success of those guys, as well as some of the other uh, international prospects who rose very quickly. Uh, Juan Soto was one of the best prospects in his international class, and he obviously is now one of the uh, brightest young stars in the major leagues. Fernando Tatis Jr. and Ronald Acuna Jr. were not elite international prospects when they signed, but they blossomed into them. So in the past, I think there's no question we at BA, uh, both during my time here and, and well preceding it, there was a little more caution. But with what's happened in the last five, six, seven years, there's definitely a little more confidence being aggressive with some of these young international guys, and we just have to see how it goes. Moving down out of the top 50, again, there were a couple of other debates. Uh, J.J. Blade, we were told to push down a little bit, but he only moved down a couple of spots. Nick Madrigal moved up a couple of spots, just consistently puts the bat on the ball, even though he doesn't hit it very hard. Moving into the 50s is where we really started seeing a lot of suggested movement. Two players who we kept up despite some pretty strong feedback that they might be too high. Nolan Gorman and O'Neill Cruz, both power-hitting left-handed bats, also with a lot of swing and miss and approach concerns. Um, beyond just the raw numbers, we uh, acquired a lot of TrackMan and, and various other data about all these hitters. In Gorman's case, it's a very, very grooved swing. Cruz, there's a lot of red flags, just kind of some of the underlying swing numbers. 
Ultimately, we kept these guys up because they're young, they have a lot of raw power, they've shown the ingredients to hit, it's a matter of consistency and making adjustments. But I will say, you know, seeing some of the data we saw on these two, there were arguments from front office officials to push them down even further. How do you kind of assess two players like this? Well, I, I think Cruz is, is just such an unusual player. Like, <laughs> or he's he's six foot seven. There's not many guys in baseball who are six foot seven. And oh, he also is playing shortstop now. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I don't expect him to be a, a shortstop long term. I think, uh, you know, maybe maybe he has a chance to be a third baseman, even at third base. Obviously, that's a gigantic human being to have over there. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's right field, but um, for you know a, a six seven guy who also hits the ball just about as hard as anybody in in the minor leagues. I mean, it's it's pretty massive raw power but he's also six foot seven and there's you know when your arms are that long uh, you're you know when your wingspan is, is that long it's, it's hard to uh, look you, one you're just just because you're that tall you, you have a bigger strike zone that you have to manage uh first of all and then because of the the length of his limbs it's it's difficult to maintain a short swing there's there's gonna be holes there's always going to be uh strikeouts that uh that come with the power and and then there's look he's he's, he's young and he's still kind of learning his body coordination to be able to uh sync everything up not just to make contact but to have a swing that's uh conducive to uh, to just to generate to, to be able to generate loft and and tap into that power uh, consistently rather than just you know hitting the ball hard but hitting it hard you know hard ground balls <laughs> um, so I, I think it's it's something where I, he's just a hard player uh, difficult player to project because he's he's just a, a unique guy where there's there's just a wide range of outcomes for for what his future might end up being. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how both he and Gorman kind of make adjustments moving forward. Again, both young hitters, both with a lot of impact in the bat. And really, baseball's a game of adjustments, and I'll be very curious to see what adjustments they make. Obviously, uh, we as a staff are still bullish on them making those adjustments, and thus they're in the 50 to 60 range. The one guy in this 50 to 60 range that I'm wondering if in five years we're going to go, man, we were too low on him, but I could also see it going the other way where we were just right, is Brewster Gratterall. When I first saw him come up to the majors, my first thought was this is a reliever 100%. Watch a little more video and, eh, you know, there actually, no, there is a chance he starts talking to some evaluators. There was some helium to move him up fairly aggressively. One even went so far as to say if you gave him Brewster Gratterall, versus Braylon Marquez at number 37, he would take Gratterall. And I don't think that's crazy. So that's going to be a guy to me that's going to be worth watching here in this 50 to 60 range. A couple other guys, Simeon Woods Richardson, I thought at first instinct, I'd be curious to see what kind of pushback we got on that. If anything, people said move him up. So it looks like the Blue Jays did in fact get a top 100 prospect for Marcus Stroman, even though at the time it didn't seem like they did. The mid-60s gets really interesting because this is where we're first running into guys who evaluators are saying, I don't even know if he should be on the list. And that's where, just to give the public a bit of a view here, we put out a top 100, but there's not a consensus 100 prospects. There's a consensus, these are your top 25, and then here's 40 other guys who should be somewhere in the 100. Normally, once you get into the 65, 66 range, that's when you start hearing all sorts of opinions across the board including people saying, I don't even know if this guy is a top 100 prospect. Davey Garcia, Ronnie Mauricio, Francisco Alvarez, all three of them, they're supporters and they're people who say, I don't know. I want to hone in on Mauricio a little bit. He was our number one Mets prospect, and a lot of people like the body, the ability. He's very young. Uh, His performance this year at Low Class A Columbia was not very good on paper. Looking at some of the underlying metrics, they were not as promising as you might want to see. Looking at the bigger picture, both in terms of the performance, some of the underlying numbers, that the exit velo and how many ground balls he hits, he, he was an interesting one because, on the other hand, he's really young. He has a lot of strength he can grow into and also maybe he learns to pick out better pitches to hit and starts driving the ball more. So he could go a couple different ways. When you look at a guy like a Mauricio, young, 
performance wasn't great, underlying numbers weren't great, but again, there's a body, there's a track record, there's a physicality. How do you kind of assess that, Ben? And ultimately, what led you to believe Mauricio in the 60s range is the right range for him? I, I mean, I think the just the reports from scouts on him were, were very positive. I mean, again, he's been another guy who's just been pushed very aggressively, not, you know, undeservedly so, but he's a, just a guy who, uh, look, I mean, guys like, uh, in fact, he's probably younger, I think, uh, offhand than, than a Bobby Witt Jr., but uh, the guys his age are players who were, you know, his, his peers from the United States are guys who would have just been drafted out of high school last year. They would not be in in the South Atlantic League. So, uh, you know, it's you, you know, you compare him to you know maybe somebody like uh, Luis Garcia, uh, the shortstop. Well, I should clarify the shortstop of the Phillies, Luis Garcia. Uh, you know, two guys from, well, not only the same international signing class, but actually the same program they trained in, in, in the Dominican Republic and were considered two of the top international prospects in in their class in, in 2017. Uh, went to the GCL, Garcia won a batting title last year, and, and they both were pushed pretty aggressively. Again, I don't think necessarily like it, it, it was too aggressive, but... Garcia, you know, neither one of them dominated. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, putting it mildly in, in Garcia's case. But uh, the, the reports this year still on, on Mauricio from scouts were much, much more positive than they were on on Luis Garcia. So, uh, you know, if you're just looking at the, the numbers on paper, I mean, it, it, just consider that, like, you know, if, if Mauricio had been, more at like of a, an age appropriate level, we'd be talking about him relative to other players in uh, the Gulf Coast League or, or the Arizona League. Uh, he's being pushed so fast uh, that he's already in in the South Atlantic League, and and the reports from from scouts were uh, all, all still positive, and I, and I think there's a lot more room for uh, growth. He's you know it, it's not the same way as Cruz because. Cruz is like six foot seven, but I think Mauricio is another guy where uh, a lot of people like him, and but like him in different ways, just because there's so many different ways uh, that I think his his body can go. Uh, he's certainly filled out uh, more from from what he signed out of the Dominican Republic, which you know when he was back then he had like little toothpick <laughs> uh, legs on this really long, high waisted frame. Uh, but I think there's still a lot of different ways that uh, he could go physically that I think will have a, a big impact on, on his future. Moving into the 70s, this is where we had a lot of the guys that we were told to drop. So in the course of sending uh, our preliminary top 100 out to front office officials around the game, there were four players who tied for the most mentions of move them lower. Two of them were the Red Sox top two prospects, Tristan Cassis and Bobby Dahlbeck. Again, peeling back the curtain for our listeners. We originally had Cassis uh, around number 60, Dahlbeck in the mid-60s, and they were tied for the most mentions uh, for front office officials. We're not talking one or two here. We're, we're talking quite a few. Move them down, move them down, move them down. We ultimately bumped both of them down 10, 11 spots. Cassis and Dahlbeck are interesting. Cassis is by name a third baseman. He's really a first baseman. Dahlbeck a third baseman. Very, very good one. Probably going to have to move to first base in order to reach the majors with the Red Sox because Rafael Devers is at third base. With these two, there's a lot of pressure on the bat. And in each case, there was some concern with Dahlbeck. Uh, there's just a lot of swings and misses there. And with Casas for a first base only prospect who's supposed to be all about the bat, a lot of the underlying numbers, both just in terms of his exit velocity and some of the other performance metrics, not bad, but nothing special. And for what he projects to be, you wanted to see a little more there. What are your thoughts on these two and what the Red Sox can realistically expect from them? Because again, I do put a lot of stock in the feedback we get. And when it kept coming back again and again and again, that these are the two guys we should move down the most, along with one other player who's a perennially injured pitcher and another player who scouts just straight up don't think is very good and was only a top 100 prospect because of where he was drafted. That says something to me, and it's worth paying attention to. Uh, that's, 
a tough one because I'm probably the low man on uh, on those two guys, but more so Dahlbeck than than Cassis. Uh, I'd probably have Tristan Cassis lower, just being a uh, just being a first baseman still in in low A. I, I, I do like him. I, I just would have him uh, a little bit lower based on more how I feel about some of the guys behind him. Uh, Dahlbeck, uh, you know, I, I think other guys on staff were uh, were higher on Dahlbeck than than I am. Uh, I see somebody who's going to be 25 years old this season uh, and has mostly did get a little bit of time in in AAA, but has mostly been in uh, you know spent most of the last year at Double A as a 24 year old with a lot of strikeouts. So um, and and not somebody who I think is like an elite, elite power hitter either, and, and you mentioned some of the defensive risk with him too, so um, yeah, he's somebody for me where, you know, like you mentioned before, once you get into this range, there, there are some guys where, uh, you know, some people think are, uh, you know, belong in that 51-200 range, and there's others who see those same players, uh, like me with Bobby Tall back at 75, and think I'm not sure I would have him on on the top 100. So I'm I'm definitely uh, I, I definitely have more skepticism than uh, Dahlbeck. I think relative to uh, to the rest of the staff. And I do like Dahlbeck, but I do think 75 is a better spot for him than 65. The other two players who were tied with Casas and Dahlbeck for most mentions of push him down were Brett Honeywell, the perennially injured pitcher we talked about. And Jonathan India, who uh, we'll, we'll get to more in depth a little later, but um, it's accurate to say he was crushed to us. Those were the four feedbacks on our initial prelim top 100 that came back to us with the most move him downs or take him offs. Something to watch moving forward. Again, Honeywell's was more injury related, whereas Cassis, Dahlbeck, and India were more performance related, although India was seen at a bit of a different level. Cassis and Dahlbeck, it was mostly moving them down feedback, not moving them off. India, it was consistent, move him off feedback. And with that, on the flip side, there was a ton of Nick Lodolo, move him up feedback. As a matter of fact, Nick Lodolo had the most mentions uh, among all of our front office uh, officials as a guy that should be moved up. Seventh overall pick, went out, and uh, 30 strikeouts and zero walks in his pro debut. Polished left-handed pitcher a lot of people like. What's your thought on Nick Lodolo? And again, he was in our top 100 when we first broke this out, but I just thought it was interesting how consistent the feedback was. Move him up, move him up, move him up. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to like uh, with, with Nick Lodolo. And I mean, of, of those Reds prospects, I, I'm probably lower on uh, Hunter Green just, just because of the injuries uh, largely, but um, and, and some other factors there. But um, you know, with, with Lodolo, there's, like you said, 30 strikeouts, no walks in, in his pro debut. Big big guy with, with good extension and, and throws, like we said, a lot of strikes. So uh, a lot of components that you want to see from a starter who I think has a chance to be a, a, a mid-rotation arm. But I, I don't want to say like that's his upside either because uh, I, I think that depending on you know what we see from him next year there there might be a chance for uh uh for even more there yeah he's someone that i think could very well jump into the top 50 very soon as he moves into his first full season and does some good things a couple other interesting names in here taylor trammell 73 is a pretty precipitous drop from where he's been in the past as high as the 20s again zero pushback on it a couple of other guys like that who had not great years. Cabert Ruiz was another one. We talked about Brent Honeywell being hurt all year as well. And these were all players who suffered drops, but no one really pushed back on it. Adrian Morhone's lower than he's been before. Once again, was not able to pitch more than 70 innings. The durability is a real concern as much as people love the stuff. Though there were some front office officials who felt he should still be higher than he currently is. Those are the guys who represented the biggest drops. Ben, for us as a staff, the top 90 were fairly safe top 100 guys for us 91 to 100 these final 10 are always a constant debate in a lot of ways figuring out the back 10 is harder than uh figuring out the top 10 i shouldn't say in a lot of ways it is because there's a lot more candidates a lot more discussion one of the guys that got 
jumped on here after some feedback was Joan Duran, another Twins pitcher. It seemed like quite a few of the Twins pitchers, uh, Duran, Gratterall, Belazovich. There was some consistency in people saying, you know, you should move them up or move them on. The metrics on Duran are great. Performance keeps improving. He's trending up in all the right ways. This is someone that I think in the bottom 10 that could really, really jump here in the next year or so. Yeah, uh, yeah, him and him and Blazovic, two guys I think who really uh, jumped up <laughs> and uh, have kind of given the the Twins farm system a, a pretty nice uh, boost this year. I mean that uh, uh, that that splitter that he throws uh, with the in, or in Durant's case, I should say, uh, I love that. I mean, I love that. Uh, uh, you don't typically see a lot of pitchers. Uh, you know, maybe it's changing a little bit more uh, more recently, but pitchers who are developed by major league teams who are actually throwing that pitch, it's it's such an effective weapon, especially when um, you know when a when a pitcher is able to to throw it effectively because hitters in you know in Japan obviously it's it's very different, or in Cuba it's very different. You have hitters who are more used to seeing that pitch, but uh, major league and uh, certainly minor league hitters are just not accustomed to seeing that pitch. So when, when you have that weapon uh, in your arsenal, and, and especially with Duran, who um, you know who has some uh, uh, some power to his uh, to, <laughs> to his fastball as well, uh, to put it mildly, uh, I think it's a it's a pretty good combination to uh, to build on. Absolutely. Joe Ryan and Sam Huff, number 98 and 99, were two of the biggest breakout prospects of 2019. Uh, As a staff, we added a lot of debate on these guys, whether they were really top 100 prospects. Uh, The front office feedback was interesting to me because I expected more people to say yes to Huff and no to Ryan, and it was the other way around. Ryan, there was a split camp, but there were people who said, yeah, you know, having him at the back of the 100 isn't crazy. Again, no one said he's definitively a 100 guy, but no one thought it was crazy. Sam Huff, actually, there was some discussion about a guy who should potentially move off. The swing and miss is very concerning, and we've seen low-level catchers really, really burn people in the past. Diego Cartai at 97 to another degree was someone else who was raised as a guy who might deservedly be moved off, although part of that's just because he's so young. And again, young catchers, you always kind of want to take the under. Ultimately, after a staff vote, they were kept on, although not by much. Uh, Some other guys, uh, Ryan Mountcastle was right there. Jackson Rutledge was right there. Bryce Wilson, uh, there's a lot of front office feedback as someone who should be added onto the 100 as well. Overall, just when you look at the back of this list, you know, namely Ryan and Huff, but also to a lesser degree, Cartaya at 97. Again, I just to peel back the curtain for everyone, these were not slam dunks. These were tough decisions. Things get very, very fungible here, uh, especially once you start talking about 90 to 100. Yeah, yeah, like we were saying before, it's, uh, you know, I think especially once you get past that top uh, 75 or so guys, you, you can really go, um, you know, about 150 deep and get a pretty wide range of, of opinions, especially, you know, th- th- these are the guys where they're, you know, you, you can poke more holes in their game or, 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 or there might be uh, a little bit less upside with the guys who are, are closer to the major league levels, but there's also obviously uh, more risk when you, you shoot for more upside with, with somebody like uh, a Noel V. Marte or a, uh, you know Diego Cartaya, somebody like that. So it, um, yeah, it gets a lot more challenging to uh, come to uh, come to a consensus on on those guys at the the very tail end of, of the list. And I, I think you can very reasonably put you know players who you know we don't rank out to 150 uh, on our you know for for our top 100, but it, you know you could very reasonably shake a, a lot of those guys out in in different orders in, uh, in, a, in a very justified way. It bears repeating. The difference between numbers 1 to 25 is a lot, 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 lot larger than the difference between numbers 75 to 100 or 100 to 125. This group, it gets very, very muddled. A lot of uh, potentially good everyday players, some guys further away, some guys, you know, considered a little more upside for any number of reasons. Um, this is where it gets hard, but uh, it is fun to put together, and uh, we always enjoy doing it here at Baseball America, and uh, it's been another fun year. 
Ben, thank you so much for joining us and all your insight today. We really appreciate it. Oh, awesome. It was uh, great to put it together. I always enjoy talking prospects uh, with you. Absolutely. My pleasure as well. That'll do it for another edition of the Baseball America Prospect podcast, everyone. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Ben Babler, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.